I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Unheard, the channel that does its best to avoid herd mentality and seek out independent thinkers and independent thought. I am Freddie Sayers. American politics we spend quite a lot of time paying attention to, and the reason for that is that not only is it important and interesting in its own right, but what happens over there quite often washes up on our own shores here in the UK and around the rest of the Western world. So someone who understands it better than most, and we've been really looking forward to talking to, is someone called David Shaw. College-educated people have kind of taken over the branding and issue prioritization of the Democratic Party at the expense of working-class white people who were in the party and working-class non-white people who were in the party. And that's driving people away. And I think that's really dangerous. He is a Democrat strategist and numbers guy He has proved controversial in the past on his own side. And in fact, I believe they fired him at one stage for bringing some home truths to the Democrat side. So that's one of the reasons we like him. He's clearly an independent thinker uh, and not only part of a partisan side. So he's currently the head of data science at Open Labs, and he joins us now from the US. Hi, David. Hi, pleasure to be here. So loads of stuff I'd really like to get into, but let me uh, start by throwing you a bit of a curveball, which is that California at the moment is undergoing a recall election. And I keep reading things that say that the governor, Gavin Newsom, might actually be vulnerable. Do you think that's nonsense or do you think there's any chance of that? That's a great question. Something that's interesting about a flat recall, not recall situation is that a lot of people who might oppose Newsom from the left, um, or a lot of people who just might want to send an anti-establishment message will do that. Um, but then once they go to the second ballot, uh, they're not going to have any prominent Democrats to vote for. I think something that's probably a huge mistake uh, is that there are basically no prominent Democrats ran um, for this race. And so the, the most prominent Democrat is a, I think, 19-year-old YouTube blogger. Uh, and so... Yeah, there's a lot of variance. I, I, I think the most likely thing is, uh, you know, Democrats did get more, Biden got more than 60% of the vote in California. So the most likely thing is that he survives, but the betting markets have it about at about 30%. And I think that's, that's very reasonable. So um, Larry Elder, the uh, talk show host who is currently doing the rounds and everyone is talking up as a potential new governor of California. Should we not expect a governor Elder? 
Uh, it really could happen. Uh, I, I think uh, there's probably about a 30% chance that the recall succeeds, and if it succeeds, he's the most likely person to win. Um, but there's also a chance that we have a 19-year-old YouTube blogger in charge of California, too. Uh, it's hard to know. So whatever happens to the governor race, there are movements kind of under the hood, aren't there, in California that are interesting for the wider country as well. Um, in particular, something you're, you've become a bit of an expert on are different ethnic groups and how they are voting. So tell us about that. What are you seeing in California and around the wider country that might be surprising? Non-college non whites who in 2016, you know, swung heavily against Democrats. You know, this is, I think, the most salient you know, fact about American politics is that in 2016, there was a major education realignment where college-educated white voters swung toward Democrats and non-college whites uh, swung toward Republicans. Very large swing, something like 10 to 15 points um, on each side. And, you know, that mirrors trends that have happened everywhere else in the Western world. It's happening in France, it's happening in Germany, and obviously it's happening in the UK. Uh, it happened under Corbyn both times, um, and it will probably, you know, and has continued to happen since then. Um, so what's interesting about, you know, 2020 is that a lot of the surveys predicted that there would be this regression, uh, that a lot of these non-college whites would trend toward Democrats and that some of these college whites would, you know, trend a little bit toward Republicans, at least in relative terms. And that didn't happen. You know, the polling was completely wrong about this. Uh, education polarization actually increased. Um, and so to go through the numbers, uh, college-educated white, non-college whites voted at roughly the same levels, uh, something like 40% uh, of the vote uh, relative to 2016. There was basically no change there. Uh, while college-educated whites swung 7% toward Democrats. That is, that is quite a bit in the context of American politics. But then I think most interestingly, uh, you know, if you look at uh, you know, ethnic minorities, African-Americans trended about two points against Democrats, and Hispanic voters trended about 9% against Democrats, which is This is between, between 2016 and 2020. That's right. Between 2016 and 2020, nearly one in 10 Hispanic voters switched their votes from uh, being, you know, from Clinton to Trump. Uh, and so if you balance that all out, uh, all of those different pieces together, uh, Dem Democrats got about 51.1% of the vote in, uh, in 2016, and then Biden got 52.3%. Uh, and, you know, what's really interesting about this 52.3%, and I think this highlights something I want to talk about in terms of its relevance to British politics, is that even though Joe Biden won uh, with 52.3%, had he gotten 52%, he would have lost. <laughs> Uh, a 0.3% swing would have made Donald Trump win the Electoral College. Uh, and the basic reason is that these big picture structural shifts uh, of losing working class voters has been really harmful due to the way that the American electoral system is designed. And, you know, the British, uh, there's a lot of analogs in Britain as well. Uh, could, I just, I just, could I just oh, pause you for one sec? Because this is such an important point that I feel is not talked about enough which is that the 2020 election was close. It was really, really close. And, and because the college uh, electoral result looks broader, people often think that Biden kind of won it by a landslide. But as you said, it's a few votes going the other way in a few states, and we could have had Trump too. That, that's right. Um, you know, Joe Biden's electoral college victory looks very large, but there were actually four relatively large states, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia, that he won by only 0.3%. And so had he done 0.3% worse, Donald Trump would have won. 
Which is what, 50,000 votes or something? Something like 50,000 votes, an absolutely trivial margin. And in in 2016, there was a lot of talk about how it was 80,000 votes that gave Trump his victory in certain key states like Wisconsin. And the Democrats talked a lot about that, that actually it was almost too close to call. The same is actually true in 2020. In 2012, Barack Obama got 52% of the two-party vote, and Hillary Clinton got 51.1% of the two-party vote. In any other country, that would have been enough, you know, for the incumbent party to to save power. But, you know, what changed is that in 2012, you know, Barack Obama could have won with 49.5% of the vote. The Electoral College was actually biased in favor of him because there was kind of a blue wall uh, in the upper Midwest uh, that you know benefited Democrats. But Donald Trump changed what it meant to be a Democrat and Republican. And had basically all of these kind of culturally conservative Obama-Trump voters were disproportionately concentrated in the industrial Midwest, in rural places. Uh, and that changed the bias of the Electoral College from being about half a point biased toward Democrats to being three points bias toward Republicans. And that's why Donald Trump won. And, you know, what's really fascinating about 2020 is that it got worse. The bias of the Electoral College increased. Uh, And so the really concerning thing is that in 2020, we ran the most popular person in our party, uh, whose last name wasn't Obama, against the most unpopular person to run for office in the United States in history, and only won by 0.3% of the vote. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic uh, and recession. So that's that's the piece I find very concerning is that we've kind of these broader cultural forces have kind of pushed us into this coalition that is incapable of, you know, winning majorities. Democrats need to consistently get 52 and a half, 53 percent every election in order to, you know, pass laws. Uh, And if you look at the Senate, the Senate is even worse because the U.S. Senate, uh, as your listeners might know, uh, isn't based on population. Every state gets the same number of senators regardless of population. And as a result, rural states, you know, have more power. And rural states have a lot of these non-college whites uh, that have trended against us. And so the bias in the Senate has also dramatically increased. And so the thing that makes me very scared is I think the big question of the next decade is can we reverse this education polarization? Um, and if we don't, then we're going to be in a position where the other side can have a trifecta and run the federal government with only 48% of the vote. So that's spoken from the Democrat perspective of how you might be able to get power more reliably. Let me ask first, how did it happen? I mean, how did it happen that the the party of the left, the party that in theory is the worker party, how did they lose support of, of the workers? I think the important thing is to note that, you know, in the context of the U.S., 2016 was an acceleration of this in the same way that, you know, 2017 was an acceleration of this trend in Britain. But this has been happening basically everywhere. uh, And this has been happening for a long time. Uh, You know, Thomas Piketty actually has done a lot of interesting research on this in the last couple of years. uh, And he's shown that basically starting in the 1950s, Uh, you know, educated people have gone from being a very right-leaning group to becoming a very, uh, to being a left-leaning group. And, you know, that it's been happened in fits and spurts. You know, there's always localized triggers, you know, in the context of the U.S. It was, you know, Donald Trump in the context of Britain. It was Brexit. Um, But I think that there are these 
fundamental forces at play that are pushing things in this direction. You know, my, my personal theory uh, is that a lot of this comes down to demographic transformation. If you go back to the 1940s, less than 5% of the electorate had a college degree. And in 2020, 40% of the electorate had a college degree. Uh, and, you know, I, I think if you, if you look about our daily lives, working class people and educated people live completely different lives in completely different neighborhoods and have completely different values. And, uh, and so I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of unsurprising that the political system has responded to this. You know, politics is about splitting the country in half. And once you, if, if you're in a situation where, uh, you know, 5% of the electorate has a college degree, trying to split on educational lines is a bad idea. You know, Democrats tried it in 1972 and we got annihilated. Uh, but I think that we're at a point now, and I think in a, just an important part of this, just sociologically, is that even though college educated people were only 5% of the electorate in the 1940s, college educated people run the world. You know, both parties were dominated by a relative, relatively cosmopolitan, you know, uh, educated elite. And I think that, but they knew at the time that if they, like people who ran the center left, um, they were socially liberal in relative terms, relative to the and, and cosmopolitan, but they knew that if they ran on these values, that they would lose. And you know what's changed is that as the party, as the the country, and as the world has gotten more educated, we're now at a point where you can win a democratic primary, uh, you can win in a mayoral's race, and you know London or New York campaigning on on cosmopolitan values. But we're not yet at the point where something like that can win a national election, particularly given the structure of our electoral institutions. Um, so I, I would say the, you know, the big picture reason this is happening is that, you know, the changing demographics has made uh, people in the center left, I think, overconfident um, in where the country and where the, you know, where the country is. And this lack of messaging discipline is kind of set in motion, you know, these forces. So in a way, it's also the the, the fundamental fact of the expansion of college education then. I mean, we've had the same thing here. It was a big Tony Blair initiative that 50% of people should go to university. And it's created, in a way, a divided society between university people and non-university people. And what you're saying is they're actually getting further apart. That's exactly how I see it, um, that there is this fundamental divide. Um, uh, and I think that as, as this divide has been created, you know, politicians have tried to capitalize on it. I think Donald Trump very correctly saw uh, that there was this huge opportunity to play on these different class divides. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the important message for me uh, is that the center left shouldn't take the bait um, because the reality is that most people haven't gone to college and most people do not identify as liberal or progressive. You know, in the U.S., uh, if you ask people, do you identify as liberal, moderate or conservative? 20 percent of people say they're liberal uh, you know, 40% say conservative and 40% moderate. And, you know, I think there's just a real, real issue. And I think this is true in Britain too, where if you look at the electorate, um, white people with a college degree who are under the age of 34 are less than 5% of the electorate, but they are literally a majority of people who, uh, work in politics. And so I think, and, and those people themselves live in circles where everyone is exactly like them. And so I think it's very easy for us to develop an inflated sense of how progressive the electorate is or how much people share our values. Um, and I'll just give you know one, uh, one quote, which is, I think in the US, uh, a lot of people will say 
you know, the problem with progressives is that we're too wonky. We talk too much about issues and we really just need to communicate our values. But our values are actually strange and foreign to swing voters. If they shared our values, they wouldn't be swing voters. They would be liberals. Uh, and so the only reason people actually ever support us is because, or ever did support us was because we, you know, talked about non-polarizing issues uh, that appealed to normal people who didn't kind of share the commitments to solidarity and egalitarianism uh, that activists had. And I think that we've kind of lost the thread and started to communicate the fundamentals of, you know, why, why, how we see the world. And that's really turning a lot of people off. I mean, this is heresy, David. I mean, you know, we've talked to a lot of um, liberals and conservatives, but, you know, the, the overwhelming amount of energy on the left in the US is going into these kind of issues, isn't it? Whether it's the, the latest fashionable ideas about um, race or immigration or gender or all of these kind of so-called culture war issues are getting a huge amount of airtime. I mean, what you're saying is if, if Democrats want to win properly and win comfortably, they need to talk about them less. Yeah, you know, I, I think that going back to the 2020 election results, uh, a lot of people have talked about this trade-off, that if you focus on college-educated white people, that you'll turn off, you know, the white working class. But the lesson of 2020 is that, you know, you won't just lose the white working class, you'll also lose the non-white working class, that our losses among non-whites were concentrated among, you know, working class voters. Uh, and, you know, just to talk really briefly about that, if you go back to ideology, uh, ideology doesn't vary very much by race. Uh, you know, roughly the same percentage of black, white and Hispanic voters uh, identify as liberal, moderate or conservative. Uh, and so the, re the way that that works mathematically, given that Democrats historically have won non-white voters, is that they've won very, even though white people are very polarized by ideology, roughly 80% of white conservatives vote for Republicans, roughly 90% of white liberals vote for Democrats. Uh, historically, Democrats have won non-white conservatives by very large margins. Uh, but what's changed in the last four years is that non-white conservatives are starting to vote more like white conservatives. And I think the reason why that's happening is that, you know, as the uh, Democratic Party gets kind of more educated, uh, college educated people have a lot of disproportionate influence in a lot of ways. And this is an old left-wing idea that richer people, they donate more, they work in campaigns more, they're more likely to know journalists. And I think that what's happened is that college educated people have kind of taken over the branding and issue prioritization of the Democratic Party at the expense of working class white people who were in the party and working class non-white people who are in the party. And that's driving people away. And I think that's really dangerous because in, you know, in the Democratic Party, if you don't have non-white conservatives and you are just a party of uh, educated white liberals, that gets you to 25, 30%. That's very dangerous. So it's kind of extraordinary what you've just said, because so much energy and focus goes on um, issues of race and issues of helping non-white parts of the population by these white college ed educated liberals. And yet they appear to be putting off the very groups that they think they're helping. Is that right? Is it? I mean, can we dive into that for a moment? Is it, is it true of African-American as well as Hispanic groups? Um, do you see differences there? What, what, how can they possibly win them back? Yeah, I, I think the, the key is that only something like 80% of non-white voters identify as either moderate or conservative. 
And even though they have more liberal views on a lot of racial issues than white voters overall, we're now at a point where white liberals are substantially to the left of black voters or uh, Hispanic voters on a variety of racially charged topics, questions like defunding the police or questions like um, uh, like racial discrimination. And so, you know, I. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game-changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanicure.com Manny 20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I think that the message is that historically the Democratic Party was a coalition uh, of working class, white and non-white moderates and conservatives and white liberals. And, you know, that meant concessions. It meant allowing black elected representatives to have some control over over the issue narrative. And I think what's funny about the defund the police thing or interesting is that basically every, almost every black elected official in the country did not support defunding the police because, you know, the uh, African-Americans and especially Hispanics do not support defunding the police. But it still went up to the highest levels of journalism and, uh, and advocacy discourse because it was something that young, very affluent white leftists liked. And I think that that's in a lot of ways, cultural imperialism. You know, we can't let 1% of the population dictate, uh, you know, dictate what the, you know, one of the major parties in the U S thinks, um, you know, we need, and and so that's just, I think the main message that I'm trying to send is that people like me have disproportionate influence and power due to the way that society is structured. Um, but we need to be disciplined um, and exercise restraint in how we use it. Otherwise, we're going to drive all of these other groups who do not have the ability to out-organize us in democratic primaries or in the media discourse um, to just vote with their feet. You know, if we don't listen to them, they'll just become Republicans. And that is what we are seeing. Uh, and given the nature of the Republican Party, that's very dangerous. So I, uh, like you, spend a lot of time with uh, liberals. I talk to them and I kind of feel like I know how they think. And 
I think a lot of them don't really like those people you're talking about. You know, it's uncomfortable because they don't really like them. They they think they're bad people fundamentally because they don't see the world through the same moral prism, and that's why they're not that interested in getting them back on board. I mean, do you think there's truth in that? Yeah, you know, I I I think that it is. You know, definitely true. Um, you know, in a lot of the Democratic Party, you know, persuasion has become a dirty word.、Uh, trying to get people who have retrograde opinions has become a dirty word. But I think the reality of the numbers、uh, is, if you go and you ask a series of issue questions on things like abortion or taxes or whatever, well, only about fifteen percent of the population agrees down the line with Democrats on every issue. The vast majority of people who vote for Democrats hold at least one major conservative policy position, whether it's on taxes, whether it's on social issues, and you know when you look at things like immigration, the reality is it is not possible to put together a majority, let alone you know this, the 52 or 53 percent of the vote we need in order to actually win the electoral college、um, without getting the votes of people who hold retrograde views on one thing or another. Uh, you know, I think given the nature of our electoral system, it's essential that we reverse education polarization and win back a lot of these、uh, Obama-Trump voters who have turned against the party. And I think the reality, if you interview these voters, is that they have conservative views on a bunch of social issues,、um, but relatively liberal views on economic issues. And it is. I understand why folks find it distasteful, you know, that we have to try to placate these people who hold, you know, a lot of terrible views. But that's what democracy is. There isn't the only alternative to that is losing and letting authoritarian fascists run the country. And I, I don't think that there's any honor in inviting the right to、uh, to run things out of purity. So we we're getting to the hard bit now, David, which is what you actually do. I mean, what is the practical prescription?、Um, You just said liberal on economic issues, more conservative on cultural issues. That's something we hear a lot. It's something that's said about the Boris Johnson government in the UK that he was kind of, you know, pro borders, sort of pro patriotism, and in that sense he was、um, conservative. But he's basically a liberal, and spending has never been higher from a government point of view. Is that the formula? Do you think whether you call it the Conservative Party or the Democrat Party, or in Denmark the Social Democrat Party? Do you do you think that's where the Democrats need to go? Yeah, you know, I, I think、uh, a lot of this is less about what you actually do as opposed to what you talk about. You know, the purpose of public-facing communication should be to persuade people, and、uh, you know, just because of the way that ideological polarization works, even in any country in the world, most people do not identify as left-wing.、Uh, if you, but if you go and you look at what Issues define ideology here, Britain or in Israel. It's not economic issues. There are a lot of conservatives who have liberal views on economic issues. It's social issues,、um, and so I, I think that just that creates a scorecard where if you、uh, if you talk about what if you're talking about issues where、uh, a lot of swing voters disagree with you, that's bad. And if you talk more about issues where people agree with you, it's good.、Uh, and so yeah, I, I think it does point toward. Popular economic policies and trying to move the media discussion away、uh, from all of these, you know, more controversial social policies. And the important thing is that, you know, in the context of the U.S., the right understands this and they try very hard to shift the topic to these issues. I think Donald Trump was very good at that. That 
he got the entire Democratic establishment and media to focus on how much they find his social policies abhorrent. And we really played right into their hands. Uh, so I think the main message is to understand that this is what's happening and focus your messaging and your branding on normal sounding things that help people. So if you now get the job as chief political advisor to President Biden tomorrow, what do you tell him to do? You basically say, talk less about the Black Lives Matter movement, talk less about um, equity and these buzzwords that get a lot of airtime and talk more about the jobs package. Or, or what is your advice to him? You know, I, I think legislatively, he's done a very good job of, you know, not taking debate and focusing on popular economic issues. The bills he's passed have been overwhelmingly popular. Uh, I think the big problem is that Joe Biden is not the entirety of the Democratic Party. Uh, and that's that's something that's very hard. Um, but what I will say is that something I like to do is just go and watch old speeches um, where if you look at how Bill Clinton talked, or you look at how Barack Obama talked. They really spoke very differently than Democratic politicians talk today. They use smaller words. They uh, talked about different topics. And, and I just think we have the tapes. We can go back and we should go back. Um, because at the end of the day, the median voter is a 50 year old without a college degree. Uh, and that means that every time you open your mouth, you should say, is this something that a 50 year old without a college degree will find compelling? Is it something that they'll literally understand? Um, and if not, you shouldn't say it. And that's a hard litmus test, given that the people who are writing these things are 25-year-old, hyper-educated people who live in uh, one or two major cities. Um, but that's the test we should, be, we should be applying if we want to win. I mean, something you just said is interesting, which is that actually President Biden is pretty much following the David Shaw playbook, you could argue. I mean, defund the police. He was very clear that he was against that all along the campaign. He talks in short words. He's a, you know, he is the kind of guy you're talking about. Do you think that Biden is actually doing a better job than everyone else in the Democrat Party on hitting these notes? I, I think he is. And I think that there's a reason for why. You know, when I go and I look at what Democratic politicians I think are doing a good job and which ones I, I, I don't think are doing a good job, I don't see it as a left versus right issue. Um, I see it primarily as an age issue that basically Democrat politics used to be very different. Like if you go back to 1984, when Biden ran for Senate, 60% of Delaware voted for Ronald Reagan and 60% voted for Joe Biden. So that means half of the electorate split their tickets. Um, there used to be a lot more swing voters and there used to be a lot less ideological polarization. And so getting ahead in the old days as a politician meant that there were just tons of conservatives all the time. You had to give speeches in union halls and you know VFW halls or whatever. And if you said something that pissed people off, there were a lot of swing voters who would go and yell at you. Uh, and so the politicians who came of age, whether they're left wing like Bernie Sanders or, you know, whether they're, you know, moderate like Biden or Schumer, all have, I think, a really good knack for speaking about things using language that people can understand. But what's really changed since then is uh, now getting ahead uh, involves raising a lot of money, primarily from a donor pool that is extremely educated. Something like 40% of people who donate to Democratic candidates have an advanced degree, which is wild. Um, uh, and getting a bunch of very liberal, very young online journalists excited about you so that they'll mention you and you'll get a lot of press mentions. And so all of the latest crop of Democratic politicians who kind of come out of that old world, of, of this new world, which is like, let's appeal to donors, let's appeal to liberal journalists, I think are a lot worse at speaking like normal people. 
But I think a lot of these older politicians are actually quite good. And, you know, what's scary is that uh, these politicians aren't going to be with us for that much longer. Uh, and so I, you know, that institutional memory might die. And I think that's, that's something I find very scary. So looking ahead then, because normally the cliche is that demographics favors the left and that with so many new immigrants arriving and young people having new values that in time, the kind of progressive majority will be absolute. The story you're telling is kind of the opposite, which is that actually the left's best chance of winning is this older generation. And in fact, if the young lot take charge, they might be screwed. Within the context of the party, I think that's right. I mean, I, I do think all else held equal. You know, uh, the population is getting more educated, it's getting more secular, um, and it's, you know, getting less racially resentful, whatever that means. Uh, and so in the long run, you know, that should move the country to the left. But the relative ideological positioning of the parties matters. Uh, if, you know, what's happened over the last 10 years is that the Republican Party is substantially moderated, you know, on both economic and social issues, while the Democratic Party has moved to the left. Uh, if we respond to the country moving, you know, moving to the left due to these demographic factors by moving ourselves further than the left, then we don't win anything. And so a lot of the, a lot of the question is how much ideological discipline we decide to impose. Because um, I think that if we ran as the party of Barack Obama, as opposed to where we are right now, uh, we would be doing a lot better. So 2024, Kamala Harris, if she is the nominee, doesn't sound like the kind of politician you're hoping for to be the head of the Democrat Party. Who do you want to be a Democrat candidate in 2024? Well, hopefully, hopefully Joe Biden can live forever uh, in the marvels, the marvels of science. Um, wow. So you, you know, actually I, I, you actually would favor a Biden second term? Oh, yeah. No, that's that's my personal hope. And I think that that is the personal hope of everyone I know who works professionally in politics. Um, whether that's you know possible is, is, uh, is something we'll have to see. Um, but yeah, that, that is the thing that scares me, is that if you look at Joe Biden, I think that he's an example of an old tradition of something that you want. But it's not clear at all who will replace him. Um, but, you know, I will say that the incentives uh, for the like never the incentives have never been higher. Uh, for Democrats to moderate and figure out how to talk about things. And hopefully they respond to those incentives and listen to voters. Let me take you back over to this side of the Atlantic for a moment, David. So you, you pay attention to British politics. Um, there's a character called Dominic Cummings, who uh, used to advise the prime minister, who constantly tweets about you. He, he seems to be your number one fan. Um, do you see yourself in a UK context as a kind of Boris Johnson-ish conservative? Or do you think you'd be a, a Labour Party activist over here? Uh, I mean, I would, I would definitely vote for the Labour Party if I was, I was in Britain. I will say uh, the Dominic Cummings fandom has been one of the weirder, uh, weirder things uh, in my career. I get a lot of very angry replies from uh, British people whenever that happens. Uh, what I would just say about Britain, it's a point I've hinted at earlier in this interview, is I think that all of these lessons are uniquely applicable in Britain. You know, in every other country in the West, they mostly have proportional representation. And so this education polarization actually isn't the biggest deal. There are like, you know, micro issues like Germany is forced into constant coalition governments, but it's not the same sort of existential threat that is in the U.S. But what the U.S. and the U.K. have in common is they do not have proportional representation. They have, um, you know, they have first past the post legislative uh, districts and the nature of Britain's constituency maps 
uh, really biases uh, biases things toward rural areas. The median district, like the median district in uh, the UK, was about five percent more Brexit than the country overall. That means that the bias of uh, of the British maps is actually larger than the pro Republican bias of the Electoral College. And you know, I think if you look at uh, the actual last British election result, if you add up Labour and Greens and Lib Dems and whatever, they all add, added up to something like fifty point nine percent of the vote. But they would have not. They would have gotten a, a sizable minority of the seats. Um, and so this is what I think is the really doomed thing about you know the British center left, and it's actually very similar to the American center left, which is that even if all of these parties could magically cooperate with each other, they still would not be in a position to win a majority of the seats, even if they got a majority of the votes. Uh, and so right now, in order for the center, British center left to hold power. You need a dramatic reduction in Boris Johnson's approval ratings. You need magical cooperation that is unlikely to happen. And you not just need to get, it's not just a matter of getting like 51 or 52 percent. You probably need to get 53 or 54. And so that's a pretty fatalistic set of demands. And the only real way around it is that you need to reverse this education polarization that's happened over the last five years in British politics. I think that the British center left is in a very similar place to the American center left, except they're except that they're not even in power. Uh, which, and, and so that's that's kind of the that's why I think it's kind of uniquely there. Like if I was in Austria, I would not say, oh, man, you really need to reverse you reverse these losses. But in the context of uh, British and American politics, it is actually very essential to being able to lead, wield legislative power. So who is doing it right then? I mean, I mentioned Denmark, the uh, Social Democrats there controversially have kind of turned against immigration and now have quite a hardline stance on immigration whilst remaining a kind of big government social democrat party. Uh, have they got it right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say that two of the bright spots for center-left politics in the West have been Denmark and New Zealand, um, that they did kind of make, um, uh, they did a right turn and distinguished themselves um, from, their, from their neighbors. You know, what's interesting about Denmark, though, is that as they did it, they did lose college-educated voters. It wasn't a costless uh, trade, but I think that in the context of the electoral, uh, you know, the, the structural problems that we face, something like that is necessary. Um, the mechanics of how you do it, I don't think I would go as far as Denmark. Denmark's a different country with a different culture, but I think it highlights the uh, that it's not impossible to reverse education polarization. Even though this has been a long, steady trend, this isn't physics. It is possible for parties to swim upstream. Uh, and I think that it's morally imperative that we do it, because uh, if you look at Denmark and New Zealand, they actually have passed sweeping progressive legislation that has helped a lot of people. Um, so uh, I, I think those are some of the bright spots. I think Portugal is another bright spot. Um, I think that it's not a coincidence that Portugal is probably one of the least educated countries in the West, um, just because they have you know, so much immigration. Uh, and, you know, if you look at how the Portuguese center left operates, you know, they talk about things primarily in economic issues. They didn't have to go as far as Denmark. I don't think that they've done any reactionary stuff to my knowledge. Um, but uh, taking the problem seriously, uh, I think, is very important uh, if we want to fix things. OK, final question for you, David. What are the chances of this actually happening? I mean, I, I, I like what you're saying. I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. But you then tune back into the political conversation either in the US or the UK and except occasional moments, this is not really the direction of travel, is it? 
You know, I would I would say that internal. I think that a lot of people uh, understand the challenges that we face. Um, it's a matter of incentives. Right now, we literally can't make the numbers work using if we continue on the path that we are. And maybe it will take another election loss to make that clear. But I think if you go back to the 1980s, you know, it was a similar situation where uh, the left found itself in a coalition that wasn't sustainable anymore, uh, both here and in Britain and everywhere else. And, you know, demographically, it's because they kind of relied on these New Deal voters who were literally getting old and dying. Um, uh, and it took an election or two. But ultimately, uh, nobody wants to be in the wilderness. It is very important, uh, you know, to win elections and hold power. And so I think that the incentives there will push people toward being more measured and having more discipline. David Shaw, thank you so much. Thank you. That was David Shaw, a strategist and number cruncher for the Democratic Party. He wasn't really sounding like a typical fan of the centre-left there, uh, pretty much sharing some home truths uh, about where the left, the centre-left is, both in the US and also here in Europe. Uh, whether or not they listen to him and whether or not that's the direction they go remains to be seen, but I thought that was fascinating. So thanks to him for joining and thanks to you. This was Unheard. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.